Welcome to the Eat Sleep Race podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Five. Along with me is Nick Nav, and our guest today is Dave Tormey from Enthusiast Spec. What's going on, Dave? How's everything? How you guys doing? So, Dave, you know, I I think I remember last or the first time I met you was 2000, I want to say maybe 12 or 13 in, in Port Alliance down in Tennessee. Probably even earlier, I guess. I was thinking when the, in 2009. Okay. So for those that don't know, Dave is one of the co-founders for Can I Beat? Yep. And, so, you know, so you guys were there with the Can I Beat? Can, give us a, you know, give everybody a little background around what Can I Beat was and what you guys did and yeah. who, you know, and the team too, because it was just, just wasn't you, right? Of course. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me tonight. Uh, it's good to see you guys. So, um, so like Frankie was saying, um, I was one of the founding members of Can I Beat, which was uh, an online blog and uh, we hosted events and vended at other events with, you know, alongside the Eat Sleep Brace guys and, and other, you know, brands. And, uh, I guess, yeah, let's see in 2008, we, uh, I went down to Nashville, Tennessee with a bunch of friends from New York, New Jersey, PA, um, drove down from, yeah, Pennsylvania to Nashville for my first import Alliance. Uh, that was their, you know, Don summer event. And that, to me, that was, I mean, he's still throwing events till, till this day. Um, but you know, that was a big event big trip for me, the longest, you know, trip I had made, I think at that point. And, um, that's when I met Christian and Roy from Virginia, who were the, you know, my co-founders for Can I Beat. And, um, we met that summer, you know, at, at the Import Alliance event, got to know each other. And then I think, uh, yeah, later that year, uh, well, I guess fast forward another year, we went down again in 2009, all hung out again, stayed at La Quinta Hotel close to uh, Nashville Super Speedway, where the event was, uh, partied, hung out, you know, brought our cars down, all had a good time. And, um, yeah, I think that was like my first taste of like seeing people come around from not just the Northeast, but like felt like all around the country, right? You know, you had people from down South, from Florida, people even, I think, coming from out West or the Midwest. So like you had guys that you followed their builds on Honda Tech, you know, on, uh, NWP, and, um, you know, some of the other forums from back then, or even in the magazines, like in Honda tuning and stuff. And, um, it was like the anticipation of like seeing some of these builds like unveiled at, you know, import Alliance and we're seeing them in, you know, in person for the first time at the event. And, uh, so that was really cool. Yeah. Big shout out to, uh, Don, Don yeah. and the crew, import Alliance crew. Yeah. I didn't know that you got, so you met, you met Christian and Roy at import Alliance. Yep. Yep. That's where we first met. And I think we had some mutual friends, you know, we weren't that far. Like I was in Jersey, um, living in Jersey and, you know, grew up in Jersey, but you know, they're in Northern Virginia. So, you know, we had some mutual friends and probably cross paths on Honda tech and stuff over the years, but like just never met in person. So how did you guys come up with the name? Can I be? <laughs> so I, that's definitely Christian and Roy. So they really like kind of came up with the idea of like starting a blog uh, came up with the name and it was kind of like a catchphrase or like kind of like a you know almost like a, a term that like their friend you know local friends in, in northern Virginia and DC area or whatever would say like when they saw like a cool car or 
even a girl or something like that they just you know threw it out there and it was kind of like a I don't know if you knew you knew kind of thing or whatever and just their yeah whatever just like a made up word I guess and um it was a very it was definitely a very trendy word especially with the uh you, you know using the box logo the red yeah. background everyone you know everyone loves supreme yeah Definitely caught everyone's eye. Like big, like supreme guys. And before, you know, all the kind of beat stuff started in 2009. And so they, you know, they drew a lot of inspiration from that, obviously. And, and just streetwear and street culture and everything skating. So like we all skated and, you know, and kind of brought that background and culture and just influence, I guess, to the brand. And, um, yeah, so... You know, I guess it was late 2009, I think around September, October, they started the blog and like a few weeks into it, you know, they were just like reposting other people's photos, sharing cool cars and um, yeah, just kind of like a a repost page, if you will. Um, And then I, we actually got together in the fall and I shot both their EP3s. So they had, they both had, uh, you know, Civic SIs, EP3s at the time. And uh, I did a shoot with both of their cars down in, I think it was actually in Maryland. So we kind of met in a middle ground or whatever and hung out with a bunch of friends, shot it, ended up submitting that to Honda Tuning and it ended up getting printed in like their Oh Snap section, which was like a kind of like a feature, like like a feature reader's ride ride thing. Like you submitted photos and like it wasn't a full feature, but it ended up being like a two page spread of both their cars. And that was like the beginning of it all, kind of, because that was um, that was my first photo in print, and then, you know, and then the blog had started, and um, yeah, and then I was kind of like the first photographer and like third member of the team, and you know, and I initially was just submitting, you know, kind of shooting stuff myself and like kind of reaching out to other photographer friends for like to do features or cover a cool car that we saw that was being built or just finished or whatever. And, um, yeah. And then I guess it wasn't, you know, it was later that year, uh, in 2009, we were kind of, you know, we started vending at other events. So we went down to, uh, East coast Honda meet in Richmond. We went to import Alliance again, kind of the first year or two was just like, we were just going just to hang out and just bring our cars. But then, um, in 2009, it was the first year for us to, you know, to, to vend and, you know, do apparel, set up a booth, you know, and that was kind of a big deal for us. Yeah, that East Coast Honda meet was pretty cool. Yeah. It sucks that, you know, Marcus Hyde yeah. got into that, you know, West Coast thing and, yeah. oh man, I feel bad for Crazy him. Crazy story, man. Yeah, right. Crazy. Yeah. He, uh, I believe he moved, he he got in with Kim Kardashian, yeah. was able to take a photograph, you know, become, I want to say personal, but just became a photographer for her. And then he got in a big car accident, yeah, yeah. racing on the Pacific Highway, and then yeah. some scandal came up. Yeah, Ugh. some brain injury, I believe. Oh man, it sucks to hear that stuff. Yeah, it does. So, photography. Yeah. How how did you get into it? Uh, jeez, man, I um, I got into it. I think right when I got my first car. So what was that? Uh, it was a '98 GSR Milano Red. Um. So I got, yeah, it was my first car after driving my mom's station wagon for a few months. Uh, I got my first car. That's an awesome first car to have. But. It was, yeah. <laughs> I was really, really lucky. Um, and uh, 
yeah, that was back when I, I mean, I was shooting film, you know, that was before I didn't even have a digital camera. Um, around what, what year would that, you say this was? Oh, two, oh three. Okay. And, um, yeah, so I was shooting film and then, you know, a couple of my close friends got their first cars and, uh, and then we would just go out like anyone, you know, teenagers with their first cars, you know, driving around, going to Dunkin' Donuts meets and whatever and street races and other stuff. And, but, you know, in our spare, spare time or whatever, I was just taking pictures of my car or my friend's cars. And that's kind of how it started. So you started with a film. Yeah, actually with film. I still have some of those prints. How did you, did you think it was going to turn into a career or were you just doing it oh, for fun? No, it was definitely just for fun at the time. I mean, you know, I was just kind of like a, a lost teenager, right? I had no idea like what I was going to, my, my, I guess I'll take a step back. So like my grandfather was an architect, my uncles are architects, my parents are engineers, like, so I kind of assumed, maybe assumed or just thought I would like kind of follow in their footsteps, right? And um, no one's really an entrepreneur. I mean, the closest thing to it was my grandfather who had his own firm as an architect or whatever. But beyond that, like, you know, and, and he always, I guess I should say my grandfather always had a camera in his hand. It was like always taking pictures of like family and traveling and stuff like that. But never i mean they were that side of the family wasn't into cars or anything i got the car stuff from my dad that's interesting so, and and now it makes i didn't know that but it makes sense why your dad helped you make the trophies for your first class fitment yeah, yeah. we'll get to that later we'll get to that later but it just makes sense now i'm yeah. like oh he he could build stuff all right yeah, yeah. <laughs> So when when you had the when you were shooting film, did you have like a specific style? Because you know, digital and film are so different. You could just take a picture in digital and worry about post editing versus film. It's whatever you take is what you take. So what was your style? I guess like you know, at the time you didn't. I mean, digital was probably just starting to come out. Like I think my dad got his first digital camera, but you know, I was just like a fifteen, sixteen year old kid. So like, digital cameras were like thousands of dollars, or you know, super expensive. So my first camera was like a, a little pocket Canon camera or whatever. And um, yeah, I guess you just don't know what you don't know. Like I didn't know any better. So like I didn't know what I was missing out on with digital. So it was just like, okay, I get 36 shots. Like, yeah, that's it. And, you know, I have however many rolls of film. And, and obviously nowadays, like we, you know, we uh, take digital photography for granted, right? We can just blast off thousands of pictures on cell one card. Yeah. yeah, I remember I was taking a picture. I, I wasn't like a professional photographer, but I was obviously we didn't have digital. But I remember one time I I went to the New York Auto Show and I took pictures with my film camera, yeah. and I opened the I opened it up. It wasn't on. Was, oh, you had opened. I so I, I, I overexposed the film, yeah. and that was at the end because I thought it was done, yep. but it wasn't, and I overexposed, and I I was really yeah. upset. But that's the you know. You know how your your grand? Oh, I walked five miles yeah, to yeah. school in the <laughs> snow. It's like that. It's like I opened up my film and lost all my pictures because, of, yeah. yeah. Oh man, Quibbin is like if your SD card corrupts or something like that. Oh, that that, that yeah. sucks. But there is a chance of getting it. Yeah, yeah there's still a chance of getting it back. Or that but does. I suck. know about recovering film. I think. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. You definitely can't. Yeah, can't do that. No. Oh man. So going back a little bit, yeah. um, when would you say is like the official start of Can I Be? Because you you mentioned 
you guys kind of collectively started hanging out towards the end of the year, but then you went to your first event next year. So when would you say is like the official start of it? I think we said it was like, it was either later, late October or November, 2009. And then we had our first event in October, 2010. So, you know, we, cause we're in the Northeast, right? You guys know. So, you know, we started this in October, November, 2009, starting like a cold winter car season. And then everyone kind of hibernation, right? Cars yeah. tucked away, but like all winter we were, we were still trying to share content and post stuff. So like, that's where we actually started, I think. It kind of forced us to like start to reach out and make friends or connections with people on the West Coast or, you know, other parts of the world, even eventually where we were doing features on, you know, cars that obviously just weren't in our immediate area or weren't just like in our backyard. And um, yeah, I mean, that I think in hindsight is kind of what helped us grow. And um, but yeah, I think after we started vending at some other events, like I said, with East Coast Honda Meet and then Import Alliance and probably a few other little ones in between, we kind of got this feeling like, hey, we want to have our own event. Like it'd be a cool way to like celebrate the end of our first year. And um, we've been to all these other events. We went out to Ibach and California together and um, when it was still at the Ibach facility. And um, yeah, we wanted to, you know, we basically like we're showcasing all these cars on our blog, but like we wanted to create a venue to have them there in person and like celebrate the end of our first year. So that was the idea for first class fitment. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, you have like to set the stage, like we were all Honda guys, but you know, in 2009, 2010, like the whole stance thing was starting to pick up traction, right? Like Mark Arsenal's Fat Lace and Hella Flush blog was like probably one of the yeah. early, um, you know, kind of blogs showcasing that stuff. And then we were shortly after that and um, and then others came and, and so we were all into like low, you know, stance cars, cars with like aggressive wheel fitment and um, before even getting into like air ride and, air, you know, airbags and all that stuff. And so, um, so we were kind of, that's kind of the stuff we were showcasing on the blog at the time, you know, is all these cars from around the country and even like Japan and other countries um, that were like fitted and stanced and, and so that's kind of where the inspiration came from for the event. And so, you know, we, we knew like first time event, you know, we never had hosted our own event before. So like we didn't, we knew we couldn't host an import Alliance like year one, right? Like Don had thousands of people at import Alliance and he'd been doing it for years and East coast Honda me was thousands of cars. And, uh, it was just the three of us. Right. So we're like, we can't have something that big. So like, how do we like, tailor it to like a smaller audience or something you know niche down kind of and that's where we're like oh well no one's really doing something like tailored to the stance thing yet and you know if we find like a small unique venue like we're not going to be able to fit thousands of cars anyways so let's like you know create like a concept or a theme around this and then you know go from there so i want to go back because from from my point of view i think you know, can I be kind of help or for me, it, that kind of put a spotlight on stance cars. Um, how did you get into stance cars? Uh, you know, I think I was just like, like everyone else at that time, like, you know, forums and, and blogs were really star. Well, I guess forums were really big in the like early 2000s, late nineties, obviously. And then like, 
you know, blogs started to pick up and, you know, like I mentioned, the HelloFlush blog and some of the others that were popping up and just cars that were getting coverage, um, you know, I guess probably early on the early days of Facebook and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, um, I ended up selling my GSR and I got into a, a 2007 Civic SI coupe and, you know, I initially put a set of like, you know, BBSs on it and lowered it and did some other bolt-ons and stuff. And, but it wasn't like slammed. It was just like kind of functional. Right. Right. And, um, and then I don't know, I wasn't crazy about the look. Like it didn't, like I had a different picture in my head of like what I wanted it to look like. And then of course, with all these outside influences and other like trends that were kind of popping up, it was like, all right, I got to go lower, but it was like a brand new car. So like there was like Skunk 2 was the only one who made coilovers for it when the car came out, right? And then like other parts came and other stuff started to get made. So then it's like, how do I get the car lower? And then ended up getting a set of CCWs made for it and like did a whole road trip and drove down to Florida, Daytona Beach where CCW was at the time. They made a set of wheels while we were there that weekend. We got to watch the whole process from start to finish, like spec out the wheels that, you know, right to the width, you know, offset everything that I wanted and then drove home on them. That's cool. Did you document the process? Yeah. So that was like the whole idea. So actually me and my buddy, we both drove down. Well, actually we, yeah, we both drove down and we both had sets of wheels made that weekend. He had a Jetta, uh, and I had a, that SI, and that was like the whole plan basically hang out for the weekend with our buddies in Florida get a set of CC he had the CCW classics made I had the new LM20s made when they were brand new and then we um documented the whole build process and like I shipped my stock wheels home with winter tires on them and uh drove home on the the CCWs and then from there it was just like all right playing with tire sizes and getting it lower and yeah that's cool yeah it was fun is that is that do you still have that documentary or is that available anywhere or photos are definitely out there somewhere but i mean we can talk about it but um you know years after that like we were still doing the blog and um at one point basically uh there was like some malicious attack on our server for the can i beat blog and we lost a lot of content i didn't know that but like that hacker or yeah basically like we had we had entrusted someone to like help manage like the back end of the server and like routine backups and boring stuff. But like, you know, if you have a website or a blog, you obviously want to back everything up. And, um, you know, we just had a WordPress blog and we were learning as we went and managing it and then had someone who knew more than us and who was helping us out. But basically between when we thought he was backing stuff up and when we had some, you know, like some type of vi- I don't know, virus malicious attack on the the server we um we didn't have a recent backup for like months uh so you, you lost the lost stuff. oh that sucks yeah and then it was just like a downer because it's like we had to rebuild stuff get it back up and running and that kind of was like in hindsight kind of the end of the blog and that was that was again year I'm kind of jumping ahead but to answer your question like it's not out there like hosted anywhere because the blog because so I actually thought and assumed it was really social media that kind of faded. Can I beat away? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Not. Re- I mean, the blog was 
for other reasons. It was definitely yeah, kind of the, like getting knocked down there and like we we tried to piece it back together like actually multiple times and like tried to go back to photographers, get photos, like we had the write-ups or we had stuff saved on some of our hard drives at home. And but then like blogs were also starting. That was like so if we started in two thousand nine, that probably happened in two thousand sixteen, seventeen or something. Yeah. And by then blogs were even starting to lose traction slowly. And, you know, things were happening so quick and it was like, well, what are we rebuilding here if no one like our viewership's down and more people to your point were going on Instagram and Facebook or whatever. I was going to say, do you, do you think that was because of all the new social media platforms that were coming yeah. out around that time? And our Instagram numbers were up and like, you know, we built a pretty big following on Instagram. I mean, again, the page is just sitting out there still with like 300 plus thousand followers that, you know, we had the, you know, uh, I guess we were in the right place at the right time right. when Instagram first started and when we were kind of at our peak and before the algorithm and ads and everything took over and you've got, you know, it was more organic, right? Like yeah. if, you know, you could reach more people and reach your followers back then a little bit more easily. And, um, yeah. So, so we just kind of pushed our attention to like not only Instagram, but then also first class fitment and just hosting the show every year. And we, we all had day jobs too. Right. So that was the thing. Like this wasn't a full-time thing. Like we, each of us had our own careers. Um, I was like getting married. I bought a house, like all in the kind of background of all this. So, you know, it was like, and this was just like, I mean, you know, we made some money here and there, but like, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to live off of. It was, it was more of a passion thing. Yeah, so we were just talking about how, um, you know, at, around that time, social media was kind of taking over and blogs weren't as prominent anymore. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about how social media has been changing now? Like, do you feel like it influences the kind of content that we're seeing now? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, whether it's a passion project or a business, I mean, you know, if you want to reach more people, then you know, you kind of have to play this game and work around the algorithms or try different strategies to reach those people or, you know, a new audience or even your, even your followers. Right. And, um, yeah, sometimes for better and worse, I guess. I mean, as a creative or as a photographer, it's like, you know, I'm doing reels now because, because they're reaching more people. I've, so on one hand, I'm like, well, this is cool because it's forcing me to step out of my comfort zone and do video. And then on the other hand, I'm like, this sucks because, you know, I just want to take photos and share my photos. So, you know, a, a lot of photographers are, are transitioning into that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and understandably. But I, to your point, Nick, I think, you know, the algorithms and social media and the trends are like driving that, right? Like, would those people actually find themselves doing more video naturally if it wasn't for the algorithm right. or for these trends and for, you know, the fact that, you know, the odds of a quick video clip going viral versus a set of 10 photos or whatever, even one photo, like we all know now that, you know, you're at a higher likelihood of reaching millions of people or thousands of people even with just a quick clip. Do you think photography is dead? No. I mean, I... I make a living taking photos still. So I don't 
personally think so. I mean, I think people could probably make that argument or maybe it's going that way. I don't know. Um, uh, I guess I'm probably on the older side of the spectrum as far as like, you know, I have two stepsons that are in their twenties actually. So like, you know, they're like into TikTok and other, you know, newer trends, I guess. And, um, I haven't, I haven't signed up. I'm not, I'm not on TikTok, admittedly. Maybe I'm like behind the times or I'm missing out on something personally, like for my business and what I'm doing now. I don't think that that's where my ideal client or my target audience is. So I just don't think that it's, you know, yes, maybe I could reach a younger audience or more people by doing it. But I think there's still like a, there's something to be said about like, there's views and then there's like, quality of views almost it's I don't know how you measure it I guess it's probably like an intangible but um, to me it's like I've posted a reel and maybe it gets 10,000 views or something like that but like it's all random people it's people that like have these weird pages with like no posts or like few posts and like they look like bots honestly so I'm like questioning half the time if they're actually like real and they're certainly not someone that's going to call me to photograph their car or list their car on a, at an auction. And so, like, what's the value? You know, I mean, am I getting more engagement? Yeah, if I look at my insights or my metrics, I am. But, like, am I getting more calls and more jobs because of it? I don't think so. Do you think it's more worth having, like, a small, dedicated fan base as opposed to having a massive following that just kind of checks out your stuff here and there or just just viewing your stuff personally i do i mean i have friends who you know have hundreds of thousands of followers or i've you know we've built the ken ip page to 300 plus thousand followers i think at its peak it was over four hundred thousand. i mean you end up you know just with you we have all seen the comments right you get especially nowadays they're all bots commenting like send it here send it to that page send right dm yeah. for future so it's only like and then you know, or, or some other weird posts that make you know totally irrelevant right and so i'd rather have you know clients prospective clients people that actually value my work or my services or just are you know have fun following or whatever and like my what we're doing or my story or whatever the brand then um you know then having thousands of people that could care less so I want to go back to uh, First Class Fitment. How many years? How many years was that show? Ten years. Yep. You know, it felt like it was yesterday that yeah. that, that show was. COVID definitely helped with that, I think. But yeah. And so, what kind of what what ended the show for, from your perspective? Um, it was a few things, I think. So, you know, I think leading up to that last year. So our last year was 2019. Um, we hosted the show every October in Princeton, New Jersey at the airport, a uh, small private airport for anyone who isn't familiar with the show or the airport. And basically, you know, that was my, it became my project every year. Um, I was the one who lived in Jersey and eventually PA, excuse me. And, um, and the guys lived down in Virginia, so they weren't local, right? So like I could handle all the logistics, permitting, meeting with the owners of the airport, meeting with the police, things like that. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, and at a certain point too, like Christian managed the blog, right? That was his thing. Roy managed our order fulfillment and, you know, shop and 
apparel and things like that. So that was just like naturally how we kind of divided our, our work and different things that we were doing for the brand. And so anyways, to get to your point though, like what ended it, I guess, um, you know, like I alluded to before, like the blog kind of faded away a few years prior. So we didn't have a blog anymore. We weren't, and because of that, we weren't really even doing like apparel online. We were like bringing apparel to like some big events each year in person. And then obviously we'd make apparel for our own show every year, but you know, we weren't doing the online stuff. And, uh, as we were getting towards those last couple of years, it was kind of like, well, I don't know. It was just like, kind of like, well, 10th year felt like a good way to like kind of wrap things up and like celebrate a, an anniversary or like a milestone. And also, um, you, I guess you just, you don't always get to choose when things end right in life, like not just business ventures, other things obviously too. And so like the fact that like we started talking about like, Hey, maybe this is, maybe it's time, like where it just didn't feel like we all, like we didn't want it to drag out and like kind of fizzle away or like fall apart. Like we were all still friends. We, you know, we had this event, we thought it was, you know, successful and doing well and growing still, but we, um, I think even some of our tastes and cars started to kind of change too, right? So it's like we painted ourselves into a little bit of a corner. We didn't know it in 2009, 2010 when we were doing it, but the name First Class Fitment, like we were in, you know, that was like I described before, like the theme of the event. But as, you know, I look back, like it was like, well, I was getting less and less interested in like the whole stance thing. So like after my SI, I had two S2000s like they were lowered but like they weren't like slammed and like you know crazy wheel or fitment or camber or anything like that so um even myself I kind of started to feel a little disconnected from like that whole segment so we started to try and fit in like more you know like even Brian's car with like meaty fitment and like big tires and like you know other car track cars and things like that or just clean cars just to like mix it up towards the end what what was the first year of first? 2010. 2010? Yeah. I think my first one was 2013. Okay. And I went yeah. in my first car, which was also an Acura Integra. Okay. It was, it was a 95 Acura Integra. Nice. So I, I have a special place in my heart. And, yeah. and my friend that took me to this event is yeah. going to be very upset <laughs> that I didn't invite him to this. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the event and I, I did my best to to go to as many as possible from that first one. So it was a really awesome event. Well, the year story. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, we went to, we went to almost, I probably missed one or two, but I went to a lot of them. I, 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 I remember the, there at the first one. It really transitioned, but there was, cause there were so many other styles, right? We had VIP, you yeah. had track cars, you had yeah. drag racing cars, you yeah. had JDM, you had Euro. Yeah. There was just so much, which, to, to me personally, I like seeing all that, you know, I just, yeah. it, it, it was a good thing to see the different varieties. Yep. Um, you know, there are people out there that are very like, I'm only this, or I'm only that, like, and there are people that like me that I'd like to see all like the different, everything. different styles to and appreciate them, you know? No, I think that's an important thing. And I, I haven't really touched on that, but like, you know, I've always, I mean, up until recently, actually, like I've always been a Honda guy, Honda's Acuras, but I've always loved all different types of cars. So like on the weekends or at, you know, events and stuff, like I go to all types of different events, you know, regardless. I mean, I 
Christian and I brought our Honda Civics to H2O when it was like still at um, the fairgrounds track. Oh, okay. And um, that was a big thing, like in like 2010, 11. Yeah, something like that. Um, but regardless, like the whole idea behind the show wasn't just the stance thing, but it was really to like showcase. Stance was like not just one maker model. It was like kind of spreading across all different segments. And and then as it evolved, like you said, it was like not just like slammed cars, but it was track cars, you know, um, drag cars and and you know vip etc and so like it was it was exactly that it was like bringing people from all different corners of like the car world together at one event and like bringing people together that otherwise wouldn't ever find themselves parked next to each other because they always go to vip events or they always go to jdm type events and they don't go to euro events or you know that whole like fuck hondas or you know excuse my language for like you know or the opposite yeah a lot of the euro guys hated we were younger there was that was a big yeah there's a lot of hate between it's crazy euro versus japanese i'm sure yeah but like i just wanted you know because like i met my wife and she had a gti and all my friends like my friend that we went to ccw with like that was my best friend he had he was a big volkswagen guy so like i was like kind of straddling that like line of like Hondas and Volkswagens <laughs> and like you know and but I was you know going to like Waterfest at E-Town and like going to all these events and then also going to East Coast Honda Mead and Import Alliance and trying to bring some of those Volkswagen guys to like Import Alliance every year because that was like maybe the closest thing to like blending different cars together but even I still think that was probably more import or Japanese than Euro obviously um, so we so- tried to blend that all together at the airport each year yeah i i uh i definitely appreciated it and i actually you know love seeing the variety um what what would be your most memorable thing that you can remember you know during your you know the can i beat phase of your life um i mean i guess it's i don't know it's kind of obvious or maybe a little cliche but it's kind of like the bookends it's like i'll always remember that first year because it was like you you with any new business or any new project right like you start something and you try and you put it out you put yourself out there you put the project out there or the show in this case you don't know if anyone's going to show up <laughs> you know like you you advertise it you promote it you try and spread the word and tell your friends and convince people to come out but like you only know so many people right and like do you really just want to have like a big meet with all your friends like yeah that's cool but like you want to try and attract other people or get people to make a drive from far away or wherever so that first year was very memorable because it was like to me that was kind of my you know I had this corporate job I was working and so for me that was like my first real you know we had already done about a year like I said of can I be but like it was really like a that felt like my first real like I don't know like entrepreneurial type of like thing that I really invested myself in like I dove you know 110 percent into that and was like I'm gonna make this work somehow or try and you know do the best job I can so I remember running around like crazy that day you know my parents were there my sister was there I think co-workers like came out just to see what I was doing and that you know these are people who had enough no interest in cars or no real like idea what the hell I was working on um 
And it, you know, it was much smaller that first year. I think it was like 125, maybe 150 cars the first year. And then the end, you know, the 10th year obviously was like kind of emotional and also just like memorable because so many people that maybe came to the early ones or hadn't seen in years, like came out of the woodwork kind of, or brought a car out that we hadn't seen. We had a friend's car there who had recently passed away and her family brought her car out. Um, you know, again, my family was there, my, my stepsons, my wife, my parents, and, um, and then, you know, towards the end, I think we had about 400 cars and, you know, a lot more spectators and it was, it felt a lot bigger, obviously. And so, you know, and a lot of people like Nick, like just shared, you know, memory, like that whole day or even week and, you know, month leading up to it, like people were just sharing stories and memories about like the event over the years and like different cars they brought out or people they met or, you know, whatever, winning an award or just having a good time. And so, I don't know. I mean, that was, uh, th that was, you know, a big thing for me, I guess. And, um, definitely felt like, um, you know, an accomplishment, just kind of like providing that venue again for people to like meet and have a good time and hopefully like a chill atmosphere for yeah people to hang out. And, uh, it was always kind of like a way we wrapped up our season too. So it was like, you know, again, fall in the Northeast and it was getting cold and like, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like we'd see all of our friends and then we wouldn't see each other again until spring. So that was, when was the last, when was the last first class? October 2019. You think, you think, uh, 2029, there'd be like the <laughs> yeah, but 20 year, number 11. Now. Um, I've definitely thought about, you know, like doing something again, um, in a different capacity probably, or just maybe even like a different brand or project. Um, COVID obviously like slowed things down and it was like, you know, no events for a little while there. And then, um, and then I've kind of started an, another project or a new business since then. So that's taken up a lot of my attention and, and focus. But um, I still have it, I think, in that kind of like burn in me to like do something. Again. So maybe, maybe. maybe. All right. Yeah. Maybe our listeners maybe. will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> keep, yeah. Keep on the edge of, edge of their seats right now. They're like, oh, please. <laughs> it might not be first class women and it probably won't be at the airport because other people have started to use yeah I, I, I want to get into that yeah. I I wrote I I thought about that this morning and I, I was like I don't know if this will be too controversial but I figured I'd ask you anyway sure how do you feel about other people hosting events at the Princeton Airport sure and before you answer that I actually thought you stopped it because they didn't want to do it anymore but apparently that's not no, the answer no. doesn't seem. I mean, I tried to make that very clear at the last event. Like even during the award ceremony, we gave in a, one of our awards. So we, Frankie mentioned it earlier, but every year my dad and I made the awards. Um, there, you know, we tried to instead of doing like fifty awards or like t-ball trophies or small plastic awards, like we tried to make like handmade or custom awards every year and keep it to like a, a smaller number, like best of of different categories. And these were like top-notch like i wanted a trophy <laughs> i he had one cut up ccw wheel yeah. your dad made the 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 base the base yeah. for it and then like a holder for it yeah another one was like was it taint you guys got like some yeah we used paint suspension um, for like auto coilovers for a while um they partnered with us terry and the guys down at fortunato so these were just you know like a plaque or anything they were actually something 
that you'd Something definitely want to hang on your mantle if you had one. Yeah, no, we tried to make them special. So like, you know, people put a lot of time and effort right into their cars. And I don't know, it's like if we're going to do awards, let's like make the awards equally as, you know, special as the cars that we're giving them to. And, um, you know, and so part of the show too, like we didn't get into it really, but to touch on it, like we we handpick the cars for every event every year. So like it wasn't a first come first serve. It wasn't a just show up the day of and park in a parking lot. It was, we created a registration system, a website, like, and everyone had to submit their car. It didn't matter if you were like my neighbor or my best friend, like submit it because we want to account for every spot at the event. And we want it to like run smoothly and we don't want to over, you know, oversell the event or undersell the event. We want to fill it, which is always tough as an event organizer, but we, you know, got better with that over the years. But, um, how did you guys deal with the cars that you didn't accept? I'm sure there was always a lot of like drama and with social media, it got a little crazy over the years with, you know, people posting or getting pissed and emails. I got phone calls sometimes, you know. You name it. I mean, over the years, there was a certainly backlash because of it. And I mean, I don't want to say we were the first people to, you know, handpick or screen cars for events. Obviously, people have been doing that for like high rod events and other stuff for years and years before. But we tried to like take, you know, a little bit more modern approach to it, I guess, like with a, a website and a, a, a actual screening system where you could upload photos and it wasn't like email a picture of your car or, you know, like the first year we did email and that was a nightmare. And then we learned and we like, you know, built out something to, to make it easier for every, for not only people submitting, but for us too. And um, yeah, I mean, people got upset and hey, I mean, did you guys have like criteria to kind of say, well, this is the reason why we didn't let you in or you was know, it really? We tried to be polite, I guess, and and say, you know, it. I mean, the reality is we always, we were fortunate enough to always have more submissions than we had spots. So like we never had the problem of like having to just accept cars just to fill spots. And even though sometimes like people, car guys, guys in general, right, wait till the last second to register. So you don't have to wait or you have to get that guy who always wins the awards at every show. He's like, why do I have to register? Right. You know? Yeah. And meanwhile, like the poor guy who registered on the first day is like waiting to hear back, like. You know, so that was never easy. But um, yeah, I mean, the the theme was really just like clean, simple quality. Like we we pri prided ourselves in like trying not to um, showcase cars with like counterfeit or you know fake parts and you know correct like shoddy bodywork or like you know just rough cars. I guess I don't know how else to say it. And um, you know, so really we're just trying to feature like or showcase the best of the best from like each category. So what some people didn't realize was like, you know, we had a lot of like Euro cars, for instance, register because they were really into like the whole stance and fitment and airbags and air ride. And, you know, they were kind of pushing that whole like segment and category early on. But um, so like if you had a Mark IV GTI, like you were up against like 50 other Mark IV GTIs. We weren't comparing you necessarily to like the, I don't know, uh, Honda Civic that registered because like we were comparing the Honda Civic to other Hondas. So like you were up against other Volkswagens and like it, and we, because we wanted that variety, 
and we we didn't want to have like just a Euro show or just a JDM show. We had like, you know, basically we we drew a line in the sand somewhere saying, okay, like we've kind of filled the quota of like Euro cars or Volkswagens or Audis or whatever. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, so guys would say, what the hell, like this guy got in with like some JDM car and his car's, you know, a piece of shit and mine's super not, you know, much nicer or whatever, has better fitment. And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, you could debate that all day back and forth. Yeah. Apples and oranges, like right. totally different cars. But at the end of the day, like we we're comparing them probably to like the other guys with similar cars to what they had. On the flip side, did you have cars that were like hot import nights? Yeah. Gaudy, like that too. Full system, Lambo doors. Yeah. And I like it's tough because like I grew up going to like hot import nights events too. Like that, I feel like I was like on that edge of like you know towards the tail end of it, and um, and then you know the style or the you know trends kind of leaned more like clean and simple, and that's always been my like kind of personal thing. So, um, but I you know the hosting the event or any event probably, and especially one where you're like handpicking and like having a registration and everything, really forced me to like and some of you know christian roy and the other guys who all my local friends and pa who helped me go through registrations every year like you kind of have to look past just what you personally like you have to think like okay what are people what do people want to see like are they going to walk right by that car at an event because it's just like forgettable or it doesn't stand out or it doesn't have something unique about it or is it gonna like jump out because it's like you know like a a rat rod or some like hot rod that we don't have a ton of like domestic cars at the event and it's going to like mix things up. Yeah. Um, so you, you had, you had a mix of, of registrations that you had to weed out. Yeah. And there were those guys who, you know, had the cars, like you said, that were like over the top or maybe had like crazy, like airbrushing or, you know, vinyl wraps or something that was like, maybe just not the, the style that we were going. Right. A big shout out to uh, Roy and Christian. Yeah. Um, I forgot to shout those guys out. Yeah. You still keep in touch with them? I do. Yeah. I mean, not as much as we, you know, we were when we were running everything. And, um, you know, they are down in Virginia still, so I don't see them as often. But, you know, whether it's like friends' weddings or stuff, we still run into each other. And we have to get together more often, though. That's cool. I, I, I think I follow Roy. Is he still into overlanding? Like, I know he had, like, a Land Cruiser and stuff. But yeah, uh, he had one for a while. I don't think he has the truck anymore. He's, like, big into cycling. Oh, that's right. I haven't seen him post anything recently. Yeah, I haven't. He, I think the algorithm definitely. I know. Yeah, same it, here. He's only posting pictures. Yeah, that's why, <laughs> yeah, that's why you don't see it. No reels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so going back, uh, how do you feel that oh. other events are I don't know. I don't know if filling the void is the right term because first class fitment was such a unique event. So I don't really think it's filling a void. But how do you feel with other events being hosted at Princeton Airport? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't. You know, I guess it's you have mixed feelings about it. I you know, so to give some context, like when I approached the owners of the airport and. I guess it was, uh, yeah, 2010 before we had our first event. Um, they had never had a car event there. They had other events like local town things like fairs and stuff. And the owner was super cool. But, and obviously he 
he gave us a shot at hosting one event and he jokes still to this day um that he thought like i was just having a bunch of friends come over and like park their cars and you know he didn't have any idea of like what we were really trying to do and what it eventually grew to and i think that you know it it kind of opened the door right for other people to um to step in after we had our last event and uh, approached the owners at the airport there and talked to them about having another car show. And I guess because obviously we we did it without any incidents for 10 years, um, we built a good relationship with the owners and the staff there. He felt comfortable do, you know giving other people that same shot. And some of them, I think he's, you know, given a shot and probably won't give another shot to and some you know he seems to have you know every year or once a year or whatever and uh, for the past few years so um i don't know more power to him right i mean i'm not having an event there uh if the airport's happy they're not you know people aren't being destructive and kind of you know they're respecting the property and the owners and and uh you know the the airport's making some money in the process then i think you know that's great I mean, I, I, uh, I haven't been to one of the events. I guess it, it's kind of felt, you know, weird to, to go back. I, I've been to the airport like countless times since then. I, I take photos there regularly. I stop in and see the owners still friendly with all them. Um, but just not uh, to any of the other events, just not to the other events. And, um, but it's kind of, we were just talking, it's kind of like what Frankie was just talking about. It's like, I, I go to events still and I go to like other car shows here and there, but just you know, like as we get older, right. And family stuff and, and businesses and whatnot, like priorities shift a little. So, you know, there was probably a time there when I was in my twenties and, uh, where I was, you know, going to car events every weekend or try hopping on a plane and going to events in other States and other parts of the country. Um, you know, every other weekend or every weekend during the car season. So, uh, you know, I'm not doing that anymore uh, as frequently or certainly not traveling as much. So it's part that and part just like, hey, I, you know, it's, I see the airport, I have memories of the airport a certain way. And I just choose not to, uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, go back and experience it in a different way. <laughs> was First Class Fitment the only event in the time span that it was running that was hosting an event there? Yeah. Yeah, car events, yeah. Like I said, there were some other events, yeah, they were doing for just non-car related stuff. So yeah, people respected that, I guess, you know, and I don't even think people tried to host other events there while we were there, maybe towards the end. Um, and at the end, you know, some people approached us about like buying the, the brand or the name and maybe kind of keeping it going or having, you know, me or some of the other guys like keep you know, stay on as kind of consultants or keep it running, you know, at, in a different capacity, but it just didn't feel like it would be the same. You did, know? did you ever consider selling the first class fitment name? Not really. No, it's kind of, I don't know. It's the same with the, it's the same reason the can I beat Instagram sitting vacant right now? Like we could have sold it, made some money cashed out, but I, I don't know. We had decided we'd rather just you know, someone would do something else with it or better yet nowadays, someone would just take the following and change the name and you would never yeah. know. And it just wouldn't be there. At least now we can go back and just, you know, when you're bored one night, like scroll through all the posts. Reminisce. Yeah. Reminisce, bring back some memories, look at old photos, whatever. It's kind of like an old, uh, yeah, 
an old gallery of photos, if you will. So yeah, it probably would have turned into like an eighteen and over cage. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So okay. so where? Yeah. So so where is Can I Beat today? It's uh yeah it basically it basically ceased to exist or at least maybe that's not the right term it stopped you know we we basically shut up shop after the last event you know we kind of we we sold out we i mean if anyone was there at the last event you saw all of the apparel anything that we had any old stuff old roy brought every old sticker we had you know all the old box logos from over the years i think we made over 150 different box logo stickers over the 10 years and you know, he brought every all the old stock he had. We cleared out our our storage unit fully. Like you, you sold everything. We pretty much sold everything, and what we didn't sell went to friends and family, pretty much. So, you know, I got to check eBay. Yeah, I'm gonna Who check knows? eBay after this. I still have see. a huge collection of. Uh, my wife would prefer if we like turned it into a blanket or. Yeah, that's a great idea. Something else with it because I've got a dresser full of can I beat shirts and hoodies and stuff. So, so what happened after? First class fit, men can I beat? What did you yeah. move on to? So uh, I was still working my corporate job. I worked at Johnson & Johnson um, for a number of years. And, uh, you know, COVID happened. We obviously all kind of, you know, got blindsided and weren't really doing much car stuff for a little while there. Uh, I had two S2000s at the time. It's kind of starting. One of them I had for almost 10 years. And... Uh, I was kind of between COVID and just, again, like, I don't know what it is for 10 years for me, I guess, but I was kind of like, uh, ready for a change. Like, you know, I've kind of, I've, I've done the road trips to Import Alliance. I've gone to Florida. I've gone up North. I've done track days. I've done all this stuff with this car. I've had multiple different sets of wheels and looks to it. And I was just like, I feel like I've done everything I want to do with the car. Um, so I was starting to get that itch or feel like I was ready for something new or different. And I had an AP one also. And, um, so I started by selling the AP two and then about that was in, um, I guess July of 2020. And then later in 2020, I ended up parting out and selling the AP one also. And then, um, yeah, I, I guess, um, kind of just, you know, shifted priorities for a little while worked on the house, things like that. And then still like, you know, eventually when things let up with COVID was back to shooting, um, taking photos of, you know, at events and just shooting cars for fun basically. But I was still grinding away at my corporate job. And um, I guess I was uh, at a certain point, I was like, I just, you know, um, well, actually what happened was a friend had a 95 GSR he found with 17,000 miles. And the thing was one owner, um, hadn't been driven in a while and like, it was like original everything like tires, brakes, and he bought the car, started cleaning little things up, changing tires, brakes, whatever, getting it up to speed, and then decided he was going to sell it on, bring a trailer. And he's a local, but old friend of mine hits me up. Hey, Dave, can you take some photos for me for this, bring a trailer listing? And I knew what bring a trailer was and I was following and kind of like you know, starting to pick up traction and get, you know, headlines here and there about like crazy sales. And so I was like, sure, I'd never done it before. Um, so I took the photos for him and, uh, he sold the car. He was happy. And, and then, you know, one thing led to another. And then like someone else hit me up. Um, you might know Mike Lasco. 
Um, so Mike's a big Acura Honda guy as well, works at Bridgewater, um, NSX guy. So he had me up to shoot an NSX. So we shoot that at the airport. And that was like the beginning of like a, a great friendship with Mike. And so I ended up, you know, fast forward. I mean, I, I did a handful of cars for Mike. And what year was this? This was uh, 2021. Okay. And so by then it was, I think I shot the Integra in late 2020 and then, you know, winter again, and then started shooting those cars for Mike in 2021. And then other clients started to come around and people started to hit me up about shooting their cars for auctions. And then I realized like I was shooting cars for people. um, But, you know, some of them, I would hand over the photos or the video and they they didn't either either they didn't know what to do from there or they didn't want to deal with like submitting the car to bring a trailer and dealing with the questions and the comments and the things that come with managing an auction on bring a trailer or some of these other sites so it's kind of like a light bulb moment for me where i was just like well i could what's to stop me from like managing this whole process for people like because you know i could run around and do a bunch of photo shoots um which I was, but, um, you know, I didn't, it still didn't feel like I could like make a living doing that, you know, whereas listing cars for people and uh, managing the whole process start to finish basically like all in house, I could work off of a commission or charge a higher rate basically, um, if I were to do the whole thing and, and also provide a service to my clients that they were starting to ask me for. And so you started managing bring a trailer post yeah the full full auction listing so that's basically what my business is now enthusiast spec and so initially it was just like i was just freelancing taking photos right so i've done that for years i not just for can i beat but for magazines and for other clients over the years but because i had that full-time corporate job like it was always just like a a side gig, right? It was just like, oh, make a few bucks here and there. If it like pays for camera equipment or if it pays for a car part or something like great extra cash, extra cash here on the side. But like I had my, I had health insurance, I had benefits, I had a salary, you know, I had all that. So I didn't hard to walk away from all that. Yeah. And I didn't really have the push or the drive to like turn the photography thing into something else. There was definitely times in my career, like where I thought about it, but like shooting features for a magazine like i don't know if people realize this but like it it's hard to make a living doing that like people might think oh you took photos for a magazine or you had photos on the cover of a magazine like most magazines especially automotive magazines like nowadays that's my lowest paying job of the year so you know just for context and of course their budgets have changed and you know print magazines are kind of that industry is struggling or fading away more and you know, so it's um, it's kind of having a resurgence now with like coffee table books and, you know, higher quality magazines, but like the Honda Tuning, Super Streets, Modified Mags, all those mags that we grew up reading and subscribing to, like who subscribes to magazines now, right? Like, yeah, what's a magazine? Monthly magazine. So anyways, so um, so yeah, I started offering that service and, and building more regular clients that I was taking photos for and um decided to kind of turn it into like a formal thing and and make it a business not just like david tore me taking photos you know so you were still at j and j still at j and j when did you say i could do this on my own 
Um, so it's funny because like at one point at Jane, well, I guess I, I started tracking what people were doing on bring a trailer, like some of the regular sellers and seeing like their volume and how many cars they were selling, how, what their sell through rates were like crunching number. Like I'm kind of like a details, like analytical guy, like, and that's kind of what I did at work. And so I kind of carried that over and I was like, okay, let's like crunch some numbers here and look at what other people are doing on bring a trailer and see like what's the volume if i'm charging x or making x off of like a car that sells and this is my service like what type of revenue could i generate and like what are my expenses and just started kind of mapping it out and i think once i went through that exercise and kind of continued to track it for a little while i was like well the volume's there. The cars are there. People are buying and selling cars every day. Like, Bring a Trailer is now selling 800 cars a week, you know, today. Um, not two years ago, but still, the volume was there two years ago. Obviously, I'm not selling even 1% of that, probably, but I knew I didn't have to. I knew that, like, I could replace my income with, like, a certain number of cars every month or every year. I wasn't there yet. But I knew, like, hey, I'm just getting started. Like, the sky's the limit, right? Like, I knew that I could, um, I felt like, I guess, I, I didn't know, right? We never know. But I guess at that moment, I felt like, I was like, oh, there's a lot of potential here. You got the itch. Yeah, and I was like, well, I'm having fun with this. Like, I'm getting excited right there. For anyone who's built something on their own, it's like, I it was like that same feeling I had with the car show years ago. I was starting to have that again. Or with Can I Be when it started to pick up, like, I was starting to feel that like itch, like you said, Nick, and just kind of that like excitement around like building something that's yours and like something that's that you're passionate about, that you're excited about. And um, I don't know, man, there's no better feeling. So so your career is, I guess, less of the photography and now more of the overall management. Yes and no. So I shoot about 20 to 25 cars a month now. Um, so I'm still doing a pretty substantial for me as one person, signal a lot of volume. <laughs> um, I've been fortunate enough to have client, like some of those regular clients and some have come and gone and whatever, but, um, I have a, a core group of clients that keep me busy where like I can go and do five cars in a day or at least multiple cars in a day. So I'm, I say 20 to 25, but I'm not like doing one a day you know, or running around 25 days out of the month shooting one car every day. Um, so, but out of that 25, like a, a mix or a certain percentage of them are actually listings that I'm managing from start to finish. And then a portion of them are still just, I'm providing just photos and videos for someone to then take and list on Bring a Trailer or, or another auction site. So there's, you know, there's other competitors now. So that that leads into one of the questions that I have here. That's why I asked you that first one, sure. uh, which is how can you make a career out of automotive photography? It's a good question. Um, and I kind of touched on it. Notes. Yeah. <laughs> I, dude, I thought about that for years, right? And I, I even had a moment um, back at J&J when I first started where like it was actually my first cover feature on Modified Mag. And I was so excited about it that my boss was like, do you really want to be here? And he, cause he could see the excitement I had. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but he like stepped, like took me aside and was like, I was early on in my career and he's like, do you really want to do this? Like, 
you you clearly have like a passion for this and um ironically that's like the one boss that i still talk to now that i don't work at j and j and like have stayed in touch with but anyways um my point i guess is i didn't see the numbers back then when i had that conversation with that boss almost for i don't know 13 14 years ago and i didn't for all those years right i just grinded away worked my corporate job i was like ah, like i said make a few thousand bucks here and there like shooting doing cars stuff every year but it was never enough to even come close to replacing what I had as a, you know, a salary. And, um, I just kept showing up, kept doing photo shoots, kept having fun with it. And like, and, you know, pushing myself, trying to learn. And I, that's the thing. I I didn't go to school for photography. I, I learned on the forums of all things. Like (laughs) I shared my work and got critiques from friends and people online and um i just kept doing that and uh it's funny because like all these years i didn't realize it but like the relationships i was building in the car community and through photography and then like my passion for cars and photography like have all led to where i'm at today but like the job i have now or the business i've built is like kind of this mix of like my love for cars and photography obviously but then like the detail or attention to detail side of me, like in the analytical side of me of like capturing the details of cars, right? Because when you, when you shoot a car for a magazine or just for fun for Instagram, whatever, right? It's like more artistic and um, maybe you shoot 10, 20, 30 photos that you share on Instagram or online or on your website or whatever it is or a magazine. But like for a bring a trailer listing, I'll shoot like I'll provide 200 plus finished photos of a car. So I'm covering like the nooks and crannies, the the VIN stickers, the, you know, all the little details of documentation, paperwork, uh, accessories, you know, extra parts, like you name it, to piece together this story. So someone feels comfortable spending thousands of dollars on a car that they can't even see in person. And, but my like the slogan and kind of the like mission behind my business is like the driving thing behind it is that presentation matters and i guess what i mean by that is just like that attention to detail and um i think a lot of people leave money on the table when they sell their cars and it's one of the most valuable things we own especially as car guys and so like to see guys like kind of half-ass selling their cars and like put up five photos and they like say like I've got this and they'd say like it's this year and this many miles and they don't tell you anything else or they tell you like just the bare minimum they're it's like laziness or they're just like not it's like if you put in a little extra effort or like kind of cover all those details like think of like what maybe how much more someone might be willing to spend or pay for your car if you like spend a little bit extra time basically covering all the details so you actually and that makes sense right 200 pictures shows value and this is why like you they'll buy confidence right when right bid with confidence is like the term right and so if you you're in california and i'm selling a car in new york like you can't see it in person without hopping on a plane and an auction is seven days so like good luck like planning that out right and it's so it's pretty rare that someone will come see a car in person unless they're local but I mean, every day, like I said, cars are selling online and not that that's new, right? eBay has been around for years, but like this is, I think the success of bring a trailer and other online auction platforms like them is because they've taken that 
kind of eBay auction or eBay, you know, automotive or auto auctions and like elevated them with more detail and more nuance and like more photos, better photos, more video, more lengthy, like detailed descriptions and with history of the car and like, you know, not just like a basic, you know, two sentence or one paragraph description or something. So you mentioned it before that you you actually you create the entire listing, pretty much. It, yeah, if you're a, asked to collaboration with Bring a Trailer, and they have auction specialists who like follow like a certain format that they try to adhere to, like for consistency. But um, it's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. Like you get what you like. The finished product is a result of what you put into it. Like so, if you leave details out or history on a car out, like. They can only find out so much, right? I mean, we all know Carfax doesn't like tell you the full story, right? Especially on like classic cars or stuff that, you know, is before Carfax. So that's where like really like piecing together the history and all the details is important. But back to Nick's point, I don't want to forget like because we want tangent. Yeah, it's, yeah. So what I realized is like, when I was crunching those numbers and like thinking about like, could I ever make this work? Oh no, I can't make it work. It's just going to be a, like a, I gotta, you know, be responsible, right? I have a house, two stepsons, a wife, like I've got to pay bills like everyone. And so I always just said like, you know, I have this solid, good career, but like the cars thing is just a hobby or a passion. Like it always felt like more, but like I couldn't, I didn't see a way to turn it into more. And then when I started crunching those numbers for like the auctions and cars and I was having fun with it and enjoying it and it was rewarding and I was like, well, there is something here if I want it to be something. But then it was like the realization like, well, this means I've got to like, I was doing, I did both for just shy of a year. Like I was like nights and weekends, like all every spare minute I had was going into the business. And, um, I was busy. I think I shot in 2021 slash 2022, I did like 86 cars and I was working full time and it was a lot. And I thank God for my wife and family for understanding. Cause I was definitely like missing out on stuff, but that's where like, I, at certain point that year I saw, like, I was like, I've, if I keep pushing, like this could be something. And then I really just had to come to terms with like taking that leap and um, being comfortable with like the unknown of like, hey, like you don't have a paycheck coming every two weeks. And oh, by the way, you've got to find health insurance and you don't have a 401k anymore. And uh, I had a pension and, you know, all that stuff that just poof, gone. But um, yeah, I, I'd do it all again if I could. So what steps did you take to to prepare you for this this journey of being on your own and yeah. leaving the corporate world? Some of the steps I took, like not knowing exactly, like before, I, you know, this even started or before I was really kind of diving into the listing work and like taking photos for Bring a Trailer. So first was probably selling both my S2000s. Like I... I just had that itch that I was like ready for a change. And initially I thought like, oh, I'm going to sell these cars and buy a 964 or 911 or something else, you know, another like a dream car is going to level up or something. And, but it was still in the middle of the pandemic, the Porsche market's going crazy. I was just like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't working out. And I just ended up spending money on the house and then just saving money. Right. And, um, 
So that kind of started it, I guess. And then outside of that, I think, um, yeah, it was just kind of planning, living below my means, making some sacrifices, like, look, you know, spending less money, like just to basically save up some money to what for me felt like building like a runway, like for myself. So I, you know, it's, it's, you know, normally I wanted to, I don't know, like I'd have X amount of money saved. Like I knew I needed more than that. Right. Like if I was comfortable working my corporate job with a certain amount of savings, like I needed, I needed to put away more money than that. If I was going to leave my job and maybe have like a bad month or a bad, you know, several months or whatever, um, for context, like when I eventually left my job, I think I had one month where I had made as much money doing enthusiast spec as I did at J and J. And then I left my job. <laughs> so like it was it was early, but what ended up happening too was like I thought I wasn't gonna leave my job until like September, October, like of twenty twenty two last year. And I done the math and I was like if I can do this much work on the side and if I can save this much money, like I'll, I'll be good. Like I'll have, you know, a lot, I'll, I'll feel comfortable, like kind of making that jump. But honestly, um, I got a call one day from my dad. It was in April of last year and my mom fainted at work. She was, so this was 2022. So she was like 68. She should, she, was working full-time still you know and as a scientist or engineer and uh driving crate like an hour and a half each way like was like mom why are you still working like you could have retired already but you haven't and then she faints at work and then this like led to this whole thing like it was just kind of like a moment of clarity for myself where I was kind of like well I don't want to be like in this position like with my parents like in my 60s like working a job that like I not happy at I had this long commute that I hate and and then like my boss at work like kind of like had like this thing and was like asking me like do you really want like you should be thinking about another position or maybe you should try something else and like you know because I'd been in the same position and for like four years in a J&J or in a corporate world it's like oh every two two and a half three years like everyone moves around and bounces around from one job to the next and so I was the guy that had been there for too long almost and um and I at that point I was like I'm already planning my exit like for September October <laughs> and it's April and I'm like or late April or going into May and I'm like this my boss is talking to me about trying to look and apply for other positions within the company or like rotational programs my mom's sick and like is having some health issues and like she's now basically being forced to retire but like having health problems and like it's like you work all these years just to retire only to be like in and out of the doctor's office and I was just like you know what like I, t I went to my wife and I was just like uh I think I'm gonna put in my two weeks notice and so I did that and um thankfully with her support um and yeah I guess uh I forget what we were getting at now, but I guess it was just like, you know, that planning up front of like trying to save some money to feel comfortable thinking about like, you know, how much work I would have to do to kind of replace my income or come close to it and feeling comfortable with like 
maybe I have a, my first year or first few years where I make less money. Like, what is that going to look like? But maybe I'll, I'll be happier. So like, there's some value there, right? Like, or I'll be healthier. Like I won't be, cause I, towards the end, I was like, I dreaded opening my laptop for work every day. Like it was miserable. And then I would go and shoot cars at, at after work or on the weekends and edit photos. And I was having fun with that. So it was Feel like a lot better. I was like bipolar <laughs> almost, or like this weird existence of like hating my, you know, my day job to be honest. And then like loving what I was doing outside of work. So I knew it in the back of my head. It was just coming to terms with and like making sure like my wife and family, you know, really my wife were like comfortable. I mean, my parents are old school. Like I said, they're engineers, like they never did anything entrepreneurial. So they didn't really understand, but like they've always supported me. So like, they're like, Hey, if you know, you're doing that well, like what could you do if you do it full time? You know, that was the other thing in the back of my head. Between that, it's like, okay, if I'm splitting my time and I'm able to do this, like, what can I do if I'm all in, you know? And uh, and then there's also just the sometimes the thing with, entre- you know, with new business or entrepreneurship where it's like when your back's up against the wall, you know, when, like, you have no other option, like, you figure shit out, you know? It's like <laughs> if you've got to pay a mortgage and, you know, provide for your family, like, you're going to hustle or hopefully you will because otherwise the alternative isn't doesn't look great right so that was in the back of my head and paired with having a lot of fun with it and just feeling like it was like in the corporate world for whatever reason like I felt like I was limited like I felt like I could map out the rest of my career on a spreadsheet like I knew like how much I was going to make for the rest of my career even with promotions or raises and when I did that I was like well that's a pretty sad existence like I know what the rest of my life is going to look like. Maybe I don't know who my boss is going to be or what I'm going to work on or technology is going to change or whatever, but I can kind of tell you what I'm going to make. But when I started the business on outside of work, I was like, this is what I make of it. Like this could be, and this could be. You saw a lot more potential out of it. Yeah, this could be, I could make half of what I make at J&J, but I could like be stress-free and have just a better quality of life or I can make five, 10 X what I make at J and J and build a, you know, a a legacy, something I can hand down to my stepsons or something we, I can run with my wife or friends or anything, you know, it's really what I, you know, want to make it. You know, I think, uh, what I took from that is you, you did a lot of planning and, and looking at it. You know, I think a lot of people like myself would think, you know, I want to do something on my own, but just the unknown. Sure. But you kind of said it there, right? You're like, I mapped it out if I were to stay in the corporate world, and this is my potential. Yeah. And then I map it here, and there's more potential. Sure. You know, a lot of people don't take it like that. A lot of people think about living in the day. or Yeah, right? So, you know, that's a good good thing for people that are trying to be entrepreneurs is map it out. Look at, like, where you at now, and you can kind of forecast where you're going versus if you want to try something new. Now it's not foolproof, but you yeah. probably have a little bit more. You, you can make more if if you want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think we all get like caught up too in like just like societal norms too, or like what we're raised with, right? Like what our parents did, what our grandparents did, or like neighbors, etc. And 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just a pro- we're the product of our environment, I guess, in some so many ways, right? And so for me, I grew up watching my parents go to like corporate jobs or yeah, go to go to school, get it, get a degree, and get a job. Exactly, right? And that's what I I was just I didn't know why really, other than just like I'm just doing what everyone else before me did, right? So I went to college, I did that, and and I got the corporate job and stumbled along the way that's you know other stories but like figured it out and got the you know job at J&J and I worked there for almost 15 years before I left but um but you know it's funny because you get so used to that like nine you know nine to five or whatever the schedule is and like that Monday through Friday and it's great you know you have weekends off and you're just like you're just working for the weekends right but like now like I, I really do kind of make my own schedule and like I prioritize like getting to the gym every morning and like before it was like I, I just never felt like I could find the time to do that kind of stuff or like I I neglected my own personal like health and mental health honestly at the expense of like just trying to like keep a job keep just being complacent yeah yeah so and it's funny because like yeah I really have those moments now where I'm like this is just like this is my life now. Like I get to like today I was driving a uh an Aston Martin DBS and a, a ZR1 C6 Corvette and like taking photos and that's like how I make a living now. It's like pinch me, you know? Like how the hell did I end up okay, here? Like, I'm outside. It's a beautiful day. I'm like shooting cool cars. I get to talk to car guys and like I don't know how it all, you know, it's just kind of crazy how it all came together you know but you I think you just kind of you keep showing up you keep doing the things you love and even if like you have to have a you know a day job or something like don't give up on those passions or things that like really kind of like light a fire inside you or like where because like I always felt at home on the weekends when I went to a car show or like was shooting someone's car I felt like I could be myself I didn't feel like I could ever be myself at J&J I didn't, it, it felt like you're like putting up like a facade kind of like yeah, trying you're, to fit in work like mode, a corporate like environment, right? Where everyone's like, you know, kind of on edge and trying to be like proper and like yeah. work within like the confines of like the corporate world. And um, I probably should have known in hindsight, like years ago when like just that feeling, like I just described, like where I could be myself or where I really like, you know, those moments at first class fitment and the moment shooting people's cars or seeing photos in print and magazines like those are those moments that like when I look back like I'm always going to remember those moments years from now or when I'm old and gray if I'm if I get there like I'm not going to remember like the very few moments in the corporate world where I felt that fulfilled and so yeah those are like that's when you really you know know that there's something there I think and and it it's not easy like it's maybe like it's hard to find a way to make a like a real like a good living doing it but if there's something like out there or someone or somewhere where like that you feel like you're at home or like that you are happy and fulfilled like don't give up on it in those years throughout you running can i beat mm-hmm. and you guys doing the event did you ever have that feeling of i would want to do something like this full time yeah, I mean, there was even moments like early on kind of when like we were growing really fast and like we we were doing, you know, pretty well. And it felt like there was 
it's kind of a similar feeling of like the sky's the limit here. There was a lot of potential. We didn't know what it could be, but we knew it was just like, again, back to like, hey, if we're like doing this and we're all doing it like on nights and weekends or in our spare time, like what could it be if we like someone gave it 100%? Maybe not all three of us, but like if one of us like was willing to like go all in. Um, so yeah, I mean, the thought crossed our mind, but it just never, it, it, yeah. It, we didn't ever obviously take that jump and, and try and make it something bigger or, or dedicate all the time to it. And I think part of that was just like where we were at in life and like some of those big like life moments of like buying our first house or our places and like getting married and things like that were a lot on the line to, to yeah, something like that. You know, you're making other big decisions. So to make like that also on top of it, like, I don't know. It's probably just too much all at once. Yeah. So you're a bring a trailer partner or certified photographer. What what yeah. what's the title? It's uh it's not as formal as you might think. So I like I've um it's funny, like a lot of people think like when they hear that I take photos for Bring a Trailer, like they assume that I'm like being contracted by Bring a Trailer. I have done work for directly for Bring a Trailer. Um, but the majority of my work's for private clients and so Really, um, you, you could submit a car to bring a trailer tomorrow with your photos. Like, so, so you don't necessarily have to work under bring a trailer in order don't. to... Do they have like a certification process or anything? They don't actually. So like they do in the sense, well, it's not a formal certification. So they offer what they call like a white glove service. It's their own service. And Where the, it's... Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll let you explain. No, it. it's, I've heard real it. quick. It's just like a premium. So like... They have like three different services. One where you can just like pay $99, list a car, and you handle all the photos and videos on your own. It's like they'll give you some pointers and like what they're looking for, but like you've got to go out and either hire your own photographer or take your own photos. And then they have another service where their premium service, the white glove one I just mentioned, where like they'll they'll hire a photographer for you and send someone out to you. And that's where they've hired me in the past. So, um, there's no certification involved other than like, they want to see some of your work and hopefully you have experience doing listing photos and, um, you know, you can meet the deliverables and timelines, et cetera, and, and obviously get to wherever this client is located. Um, so you quote them and, you know, you provide a quote and, and they either approve it or not. And, you know, you hopefully deliver the, the work that they're looking for to cover this, this car. They're usually high end or premium cars um that are that are using that service um but it's not it's not i don't think it's very popular i think they you know they don't push it really and um i think the overwhelming majority of listings on bring a trailer and most auction sites are just private guys and then some people and there's a handful of like dealers or people that have actually built businesses even like to much bigger scales than what i'm currently doing um, where like they're, they maybe were a dealer or they have a dealer license and they've completely like pivoted their business model to say traditional dealership model where like they're, you know, they have a brick and mortar, you can walk in and buy a car off a showroom floor, um, or online or what have you to, they just sell cars on bring a trailer and that's all they do. And they, they like consign cars or you can drop your car off to them, et cetera. Um, my business model is built around traveling to my clients. So whereas some of these guys have a brick and mortar 
and they, you know, you go to them and they have probably a regional area or, you know, draw in their area that people come to them for that service. I'm traveling all over to go to my clients now, primarily in the Northeast, but if someone calls me tomorrow with a collection in Arizona or, you know, at California or wherever, and, um, you know, their goals, I can, you know, their goals with the cars or the numbers they're, they're looking to get out of their vehicles make sense. Um, and you know, if they're interested in my service, I'll hop on a plane and, and fly out to California or I'll hire a, a freelancer to do it. So I have a car right now and bring a trailer, uh, 996 turbo it's in Arizona. Um, so you flew out for that one. I didn't actually, I had just hired a friend. So back to can I beat days? Um, uh, I have a, a great network of photographer photographer and videographers around the country that I've been able to leverage. So that's awesome. Um, that's, you know, again, just years of building friendships in the industry and, and within the car community that's, um, you know, stay in touch with your friends. Yeah. Networking is always been a theme in, in our podcast when yeah. we talk to entrepreneurs is create that network. Yep. Now back to Nick's like earlier question around like, would you rather have like a small like group of like followers or friends on social media versus like a huge following of like whatever random people or people you may never know? And for me, like the, the value in social media has been able to like stay in touch with these people that like, you know, I don't see every day or even ever, you know, once a year or some people I've never even met. Right. And, you know, it's just those relationships that like I nurture or stay in touch with people online and, you know, now running a business, like I can't tell you it's, it's been overwhelming, but also like it's humbling to just like hear people reach out and like fold photographer friends, like. Hey, if you ever need a car shot in this area, in my area or where I live, you know, hit me up. And it's like, some of them I have and some of them I haven't yet, but I definitely will, you know, when the time comes. Yeah. You know, social media has, you know, it has positive and negative impacts, oh, course, but yeah. you know, the positives, like, so me and my wife, we have our friends, they moved out to Singapore, oh, wow. but I see them on social media every day. It's like, they've been there for like four years now. And I felt like it never happened because I, yeah. you know, we still keep, keep in contact. Up, yeah. Like back then, if they were in Singapore so long, see it, like yeah. I couldn't even call you because it costs money, right? Yeah. So to have that network still with social media, you know, they're just, you know, FaceTime away or DM to say, hey, what's going on? So so that's yeah. good to to be able to keep that going. Definitely. And there's something like from the business side too of like being able to like help like not only support my business but like pay friends to do work right like so like if I can help like you know even if it's some small or one job a year or something here and there but like there's something rewarding about that right being able to hire your friends or people you know that um you know can uh, do the work for you and and um help make some of these jobs like the one in Arizona didn't make sense for me to fly out but because I knew someone out there that could it made the whole job, job, you know, viable basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so I only know of, of that. Are there other, there are, yeah, there's a lot. Um, some have come and gone and like tried to, you know, gain some traction, but, um, uh, I've done work, um, for several, so cars and bids. So you might know Doug DeMiro. Yeah. The biggest the YouTube, YouTube guys. Yeah. He launched cars and bids a couple years ago. Huge, um, kind of uh picking up like filling in the cracks where like bring a trailer like 
you know, different types of cars like that they weren't listing and um, maybe different price points or like where bring a trailer like has all these like super low mileage, like garage finds or like never driven cars or exotic stuff. Um, cars and bids has more of like your, you know, stuff that's been driven. Like it's still a cool car or maybe it still has like a story or it's like an enthusiast based car, but it's not like, it's just like something that, you know, has some miles on it or yeah. it hasn't, you know, it's not, not never been driven kind of stuff. And there, I'm sure he's doing some of that too now. I mean, he just got $37 million investment from the Chernin group, like in from a private equity firm. So, I mean, that's a, it's a big deal now, you know, wow. it's a growing uh, auction platform. Uh, there's other like niche ones. So there's like the MB market, which is New York based and they're just Mercedes. Pretty cool. You know, if you're into that, like Ben's category, I've done a lot of work for them. Um, Porsche actually has an auction site that most people don't know about. Which one is that? It's actually, um, is it P cars? No. So P car market is also a New York based site. Um, which launched with the intention of being a Porsche-only auction platform, but then kind of quickly pivoted and started listing other stuff. Yes. And then continued down that path of, like, just listing anything. Not anything. Like, they have a standard, of course. But um, they, they're they not just Porsches. Yes, yeah, it's not Porsches. Um, Porsche's auction platform is actually called Marked, and it's M-A-R-Q-U-E-D. And it's a Porsche Digital project. So Porsche Digital is like a, an affiliate of Porsche North America. And um, they don't just list Porsches, believe it or not. They, they also list other stuff. But it's kind of like a, like Porsche Digital is kind of like an incubator for Porsche to like launch new projects and new technology. And, and they've been at it for, I guess, probably a, over a year now. And I've been working with their team and done some work for them and sold a car on the platform last year. And um, yeah, it's exciting to see like what they're, you know, what Porsche is potentially going to invest into that space and where that might go. And um, but yeah, at the end of the day, bring a trailer has like this kind of early starter advantage, right? Like so many businesses and other industries where they were kind of the one of the first to do it and they kept at it for 10 years and and now they're you know over 10 years in believe it or not and they're they are where they are i mean last year they did over a billion dollars in sales offering a trailer so they have almost a million registered users so they just have the largest audience yeah i have my my filters and yeah everyone gets the warning emails or the email alerts when you you know an integra type bar gets listed or <laughs> something cool uh, that you're looking for or just, you know, kind of daydreaming about. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So y- you mentioned um, photography, taking pictures on Bring a Trailer. Sure. I've seen on Bring a Trailer people do videos. Yeah. Videos Cold Star, videos Idol. Yeah. Do you do that too? I do. Okay, yeah. so you do more than photography. Yeah, yeah. So I have gotten into the video yeah, that kind of pushed me to get into it um, a couple years ago. Because again, like my clients, like I was just doing the photos initially and it's like, well, do you do video also? You know, and and I was like, first I was like, uh, not really. But I'm like, I can figure this out. Like this isn't, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's also not like, we're not talking about like highly produced, like, um, you know, Nothing, no crazy editing to it. No, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the thing with listing photos too, and it is a challenge. Like, 
for anyone out there who's like into taking photos of cars um and i have a lot of like i said car friends or photography friends that that have been doing it for years the listing photos like not to make it sound more complicated than it is but it's almost like a different discipline because it's like a lot of people rely on like editing for their own unique style and like look and feel to their photos but the reality is in my opinion like people don't want to see like edited artsy photos for a listing like yeah like it's nice to see like some pretty shots or like nice shots of a car and might be maybe that'll help catch people's attention or like spread the you know the word about a car but they want to see like a true representation of a car so they don't want to see you know this overly edited photo with a dropped in sky or like fake you know rolling shot or whatever um with filters and stuff so so you you know for, for any photographers and even myself included who was more used to like taking like artistic photos to share on Instagram or on social media or my website and like I mentioned before just take 10 or 20 photos it's like you've got to find a way to deliver like consistent look and feel across like 150 to 300 photos like at least 200 on average like I said before so it's um yeah you kind of have to develop a different eye or a different like approach to like when you're shooting a car um for a listing to like cover all the details all the angles like you know you might not do that for instagram right you just shoot what looks cool and post whatever you like and so but for the listing you can't like forget a side of the car <laughs> right you know or an angle like or like, they'll actually come back like a you. door jam yeah they'll come back to you and say oh you're missing like this three-quarter shot from like the rear <laughs> like wow that's very specific yeah you know or or you're missing like this sticker or one of the vi- you know like we all know hondas and you know nsx's and s2000s especially right there's 10 vin tags on an s2000 they want all 10 vin tags and if you don't have them like well certain cars don't have them right like you replaced a bumper or a quarter panel or car got in an accident but if you're saying that it's a clean car with no accidents like where are all the 10 stickers right so like things like that and that's kind of where like I think the value of my service or my business comes in like knowing and anticipating what buyers are looking for so like you know with each make and model or certain cars I can't know them all but like I try and specialize in certain ones where like I know what types of photos what features people want to see photos of what items normally wear out or fail and like what to highlight on certain cars when like certain things look like they're in really good shape, you know, and like most cars are all beat up or worn out. What is your most favorite listing? Most favorite. I had a lot of fun with actually the one I did on Porsche's auction site last year. I tried to run it on Bring a Trailer and we couldn't get the number we wanted. So that's another thing a lot of people don't realize with the auctions is like everyone wants top dollar for their car. But the reality is like not every car is a record-setting car, right? And so I had a special car. I knew I had a special car. It was a low-mileage 1998 911 Carrera C4S, white on blue, which was rare. And it was 17,000-mile car. And the owner was like, when I say, like, meticulous, like, he took an already nice car and put, like, 30 grand into it and made it, like, immaculate, like, replacing stuff that most people wouldn't even consider replacing just to make it perfect 
And so we couldn't get the res- like negotiate a reserve that bring a trailer like was comfortable with or I was comfortable with and the client was. And so we decided to go an alternative route and we listed it with marked the Porsche auction site. And we I just had a lot of fun with it. Um, the owner lived in Staten Island, so uh, we went up there, we shot it um, overlooking the Verrazano Bridge. And like I was able to kind of blend like the artistic side and like my background with that and like shooting features and stuff and the listing side and like just have some like artistic spin on it, but also still do like a full listing shoot with like 300 plus photos covering this car, like on the lift, like panels removed underneath, like every little detail and like do the photos and driving videos and everything. So you get the reserve on that one. So yeah, we, um, that car sold for two Oh five and, you know, exceeded all of our expectations and well beyond what bring a trailer was willing to give us for a reserve. So we were happy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they actually provide input. Like I can't just listen. Oh, yeah. I can't sell my brother's car for a million dollars now. Yeah. So like, Carnage. you know, you think your car's worth X and you like, so a reserve is obviously designed to be like your bottom dollar for yeah. your car, right? But the reality is like these auction sites make their money on the selling side, not, or excuse me, on the, the buyer's premium, not on the seller's. Right. Because- Bring a trailer is 5%, right? Yeah. So like I'll pay $99 to list a client's car and bring a trailer or some auction sites are free to submit a car. And so there's no cost to the seller. Yeah. So they're not making any money or they're making a hundred bucks at best, but then they charge 5% on the, to the buyer. But if the car doesn't meet reserve and doesn't sell, they're not, they're just make walking away with $99 and they've invested several employees resource, you know, time and, and resources to draft the listing, manage it, yeah. you know, see it through to the end. And um, yeah, so you you request a reserve, but they have to approve it. And ah, the idea is usually it's like 10 to 20% below what retail value might be for a car. So that's a lot of the, the challenge with like my clients and the conversations I have is, you know, sometimes clients have offers already in excess of what a reserve might be for bring a trailer. So they have to make that decision or they have to weigh the pros and cons of like, hey, I, my buddy is willing to give me X and bring a trailer is only willing to give me a reserve for less than that or just at the same number or whatever it might be. But, you know, there's there's a lot of upside, you know, potential with an auction format, obviously, not just bring a trailer. I mean, they've, there's been in-person auctions for how many years, right? Barrett-Jackson, we've all seen them on yep. TV, uh, Meekum, et cetera. And when you get two guys in a room or online that that want something bad enough, like, you know, logic gets thrown out the window sometimes and like you, you get some crazy, that's where you get these crazy results. So, and, um, you know, with the right presentation and the right, um, like attention to detail and not only with the photos, but like answering questions in a timely manner and a professional manner, I think that can really like drive home, you know, a better result for a car at auction. All right. I have a, let's see, there was one more. So I I guess this, this will be the last thing. This will be how we, we close it off. Yeah. What's one piece of advice that you could offer somebody sure. that wants to get into automotive photography? Yeah. 
Um, geez, I mean, for starters, you just like, I guess I don't know how to say it. It's just like, just keep showing up. Just, you know, find every opportunity you can to take photos, whether it's your own car, your friend's cars. I mean, I know, you know, there's there's like the running thing of like, you know, don't work for free or like, you know, value your time. And, and you should at, at certain point. Um, but if you're just starting out, like, I mean, I can't tell you how many photo shoots I've done for free over the years, I, you know, and but that's how I learned. Like that's, that's like getting your reps in, right? Like the same way you do in the gym or anywhere else, like any other hobby or profession. Like, um, I, I've gotten exponentially better, I think, and more consistent with my work because I have a camera in my hand every day. And like, so, you know, even if it's not car stuff, but like cars are your passion, like just find a way to like continue to like get out there and take photos even at events and stuff like I was never big on event photos I always thought like oh you know cars and parking lots or um you know people getting in the way and the crowds but I don't know like even now like it's a welcome like kind of break for me from listing photos to like bring my camera to like a cars and coffee or at a car show or an event and like take photos and just share them because it's different and it's like an interesting challenge or just like something a different discipline almost I guess um and it requires some patience or just like a different eye um but yeah I mean it's tough uh obviously there aren't mag a lot of magazines out there to shoot for um like there was when I was younger like th at least that was something like to aspire to um and then there was blogs and a lot of that's kind of fizzled out so like now it's like instagram and trying to build the following of your own on instagram or get like a bigger page to share your work and hey if that's like motivational to you or like something that drives you to like work harder or push to like improve your work then i think that's what's important like finding something that's like you know, hopefully gives you a motivation or a reason to like continue to keep doing it and have fun with it. But if you're not having fun with it for some reason, like then, you know, maybe you've got to pivot or try something different. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a grind. And I think if you're just out there trying to like charge for every photo shoot or every car you shoot, um, it's, I think you need to find a way to deliver some extra value somehow whether that's selling prints or being creative, selling merch with people's photos or your photos rather, or, and I don't know, I'm just throwing ideas out there, but like something that like separates you from the next guy, because the reality is we all have photo, you know, cameras, iPhones, like everyone's got an SLR now or a fancy camera. Um, so yeah, I mean, trying to deliver value somehow and, and hopefully like, if you aspire to make it a career, um, you know, the most consistent way people do that probably in the industry is like building a portfolio and becoming doing commercial work for for other businesses. Right. And if you're going to do that, like you have to carry yourself in a certain way and act in a certain hopefully in a professional way. And also with that comes like just meeting deadlines and meeting like deliverables for clients. Right. So um 
that could be product photography, that could be like shooting a build for SEMO or something like that. I mean, it, there's a lot of different ways to do that, but um, I think it's, you know, a matter of like consistency and, and meeting like expectations and then just carrying yourself in a way. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, don't be discouraged by people telling you no or not responding to you. I don't know how else to say it, but I've reached out to probably hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years, and they've left me with, you know, no response or said no or told me they could do it or their friend could do it for cheaper or whatever the case might be. They, they didn't, you know, choose to have me take photos of their car or hire me or whatever. And, you know, I, it's discouraging at times, of course, especially when you hear it multiple times in a row or something, but you just kind of, kind of have to keep pushing or finding a way to like get your foot in the door somewhere or know that like, if you just keep showing up and trying and keep working on your, your craft, that it'll eventually pay off. Well, that, that's a uh, really good advice. Appreciate it. Um, so Thank you, Dave, for for coming and joining us on this podcast. Um, social media, like how how can our listeners follow you? Yeah, um, in your business. So in your business, yeah. Personal page is um, on Instagram, Dave underscore Tormi, um, and then uh, the business page is at Enthusiast Spec everywhere and uh, enthusiastspec.com. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, thank you for coming out here. If you love and like what you hear please make sure you hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you follow us on all of our social media Um, and we're out thank you